This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Jeff Strong. Jeff Strong is the founder and director of the Rhythmic Entrainment Intervention Institute, whose pioneering rhythm-based therapy is used in thousands of homes, schools, and institutions worldwide. His work has been presented in two documentaries, several books, numerous scientific journals, and at dozens of healthcare conferences. Jeff Strong has been a professional percussionist for more than 30 years and has played on countless recordings. He's the best-selling author of 10 books, including Drums for Dummies and Different Drummer, and With Sounds True has created several rhythmic entrainment recordings, including the Brain Shift Collection, the Better Sleep Program, and the Focus and Attention Program. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jeff and I spoke about how rhythmic entrainment works, its tribal ceremonial roots, and how rhythmic entrainment recordings differ and are similar to binaural beat recordings. We also talked about Jeff's work with autism, ADHD, anxiety, depression, and mood disorders, and other applications, and the research that supports the effectiveness of rhythmic entrainment. And we listened to two excerpts from the Brain Shift collection. We heard an excerpt from Neuro Calm and also Deep Meditative State. Here's my conversation on drum healing with Jeff Strong. Jeff, you're a drummer, a clinical researcher, and a healer, and you work with a method called rhythmic entrainment intervention. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, rhythmic entrainment intervention. And I'd love to begin if you could tell our listeners what is rhythmic entrainment intervention and how does it work? Okay, well... um... Rhythmic entrainment intervention is basically um, an approach I created out of traditional drum healing techniques where I use very specific rhythms to impact impact the brain and behavior. And um, it really came out of three traditions that I studied uh, in the early 80s where um, you had drumming used either to alter consciousness to affect behavior or, or to um, kind of synchronize a group. And uh, I started my clinical research by kind of stripping all the cultural influence out of these traditional techniques and really looking at what was going on in the brain and um, started playing for people. And really the name came out of a study that I did in um, the, the St. Paul area of Minnesota in the early 90s. And we had to come up with the name because it couldn't just be Jeff, the drummer guy, playing for people. So we came up with the, the most um, archaic name possible <laughs> at the time because we needed to get it through the school board. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it's kind of held over the last 25 years. So, um, But the idea here is basically we're using drumming to influence the brain and behavior. Okay, now tell me more about what specifically changes in brain function when specific rhythms are introduced? How does that work? Well, there's really two aspects of of, uh, what happens here. First is this concept of entrainment, which is uh, what we thought initially was the core of what was going on here, which is why it got into the name. Entrainment is the synchronization of two or more rhythmic cycles. And in this case, it's the brain waves to the drumming rhythm, the underlying pulse of the drumming, the tempo. And so we thought that was the, 
the most important component when we first started doing research. And uh, the idea here was that if I played a drumming rhythm at a specific tempo, over time the brain will shift into that brainwave state that's associated with that tempo. And as it turns out, musical rhythm, uh, tempo-wise, is really, really perfectly matched for brainwave consciousness. So in other words, um, musical rhythm in a, in a musical tempo, say anywhere from uh, what's a classical tempo, 60 beats per minute, up to maybe 180 beats per minute. That's kind of the range that, that, that most music exists in. That really relates very well to, to the different frequencies of brainwave states. So four beats per second relates to the 60 beats per minute tempo. And I can give you the math on that. It's, it's not terribly complicated. And then 180 beats per minute is, is up to about 12 beats per second. But the idea here is that if I play a certain tempo for a certain amount of time, the brain will actually shift to synchronize to that pattern. And that can create calm. And that was our initial idea here is that we could create a calm neurological state by playing rhythms at a specific tempo. And that could have impacts on somebody's behavior. And my early research was done mostly with people with developmental disabilities, with autism, ADHD. And we saw that just getting them into this state through this concept of entrainment reduced a lot of the the basic symptoms that we were seeing, especially with, with people with uh, sensory issues that is really common with both of these conditions. So that's one piece, and we call that synchronization. The idea here that you've got the brain and training to the tempo of the rhythm. And then um, as I was looking at some of the traditions that I learned back in the early 80s, one other aspect uh, that I was looking at was this idea of uh, impacting behavior through the specific rhythms. And this was something that was somewhat controversial. Uh, it's a technique that I coined the term rhythm healing um, in the late 80s, which really was kind of a broad concept of specific rhythms having a very particular response on the nervous system. And so when we started our research, we were looking at, okay, well, if we can get the brain entrained through synchronization to this, this calm neurological state, can we change behaviors by some aspect of specificity in the rhythms? And we were looking at that for a very long time. And um, the simplest way to describe that is thinking in terms of, of stimulation. Uh, the idea here is if you give the brain something that is uh, unpredictable, that the brain has to decipher, that becomes activating to the nervous system. It becomes a way of being activating the brain. And so that was the second piece of what we were doing here is this idea of stimulation through novelty through complex rhythms. So um, kind of spinning back around to entrainment, the oldest technique for brainwave entrainment with drumming has to do with playing a very steady rhythm at four beats per second. And this would be part of the shamanic tradition where you play a very steady pulse, just non-repetitive four beat per second pulsation will actually bring the brain into a low end of what's called the theta state of consciousness. And theta is an inwardly directed state just above unconsciousness. And this is where uh, you go into when you're doing a shamanic journey, for instance, or if you're a really good uh, adept meditator and you can really get deep into your meditation, this is where your brain is going, is a low in the theta. They're a repetitive rhythm. Um, the stimulation is the opposite of that. It's, it's non-repetitive and it's faster. We actually settled with rhythmic entrainment intervention on rhythms that double that tempo at eight beats per second, because that's the transition between the theta, this inwardly directed meditative state, and uh, alpha, which is a relaxed, alert neurological state. Um, we kind of chose that as the optimal place to be, because alpha is really about being calm neurologically, but also being receptive and outwardly directed. So sensory processing improves. Um, and uh, that can be a real benefit with the kind of people I was working with early on. So. Now, just to clarify something, when you talk about rhythms affecting behavior, what kind of behaviors are you talking about? Well, it kind of runs the gamut. Um, I, I, one of the classic ones I, I, I talk about a lot, because this is one of the first most obvious things that I saw when working with uh, children with autism, for instance, is um, one of the classic behaviors you see with autism is a uh, repetitive motion. 
It's uh, called a self-stimulatory behavior. It's a behavior that is repetitive, that is, that, that is generally used as a way of being able to modulate sensory input. And the classic one that I talk about a lot of times, kind of a hand-flapping motion. And I found that if I played a particular rhythm, that hand flapping would stop almost all the time. And we saw that consistently over the people I worked with early on. And that was kind of the beginning of saying, is there some real specificity to the rhythm and behavior? And so you you have this aspect of being able to stop that behavior like as it's, as it's happening with a particular rhythm. And then by extension, we started looking at what happens if you can affect behavior in the long term by giving that same type of stimulus or a evolution of that stimulus over time. But it can be anywhere from a self-stimulatory behavior or um, an anxiety response or um, a brain's a response to, um, say, a mundane task where the brain shuts down, say, with somebody with ADHD. So it can be a real overt behavior like this hand flapping or it can be a more subtle neurological response like the brain shutting down, for instance. So, you know, Jeff, in your book, Different Drummer, this was something that really struck me. You described that you discovered over 600 different rhythms that produce different but specific changes and responses in people. So I was really struck by that. 600 different rhythms. I don't even know if I could imagine 600 different rhythms. So I'm curious, how did you figure that out, these 600 different rhythms? Oh, I just played for people. <laughs> oh, God, um, it, it it was fun because this is what I this is what I love to do. It's basically what what happened is I when I started out I I played for people and I documented everything. I I recorded the sessions. I I videoed. I wrote down what was going on and, and behaviors, and I started looking at patterns. And um, I had ideas about types of rhythms I wanted to play. Uh, so I had a starting point. My, my first teacher believed, uh, um, came, came from a tradition where when in ceremony, you, in order to um, have a successful ceremony, you needed to play particular rhythms in a particular order. So this was kind of the starting point of this idea. And then as well, he played for people one-on-one and kind of shared with them the idea of what he was doing. That was the seed, but really what happened is it became a process of improvisation and observation. So I'd play something and I'd watch for a response. I'd play some more and watch for another response. And then after my session, I'd, I'd write down all the rhythms I played, and then I'd make notes about what the response was. And I had notebooks and notebooks filled with rhythmic patterns and responses and um, data about the person I was playing for. And then I started seeing the connections between, oh, if I played this rhythm or a slight variation on it, I almost always saw this response, um, this gleefulness, for instance. This, this, um, even if it's just that this, this minor point of, of seeing that someone has just kind of gotten to this, this peaceful place with just a slight smile or a breath out or... Whatever it was, uh, I could say, oh, well, this, this, this could be uplifting. Uh, what if I were to focus that in a little bit more? And so it was a process and a refinement. And I spent from about 1992 to 2004 doing this process. So over the course of 12 years playing with all the people I played with, it was, it was just documenting and starting to see patterns. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something I'm really good at is kind of making the connection between these patterns. So, um, and, and, you know, they're, they're, some people will listen to these rhythms and they can't really hear the difference between one rhythm to another because it's still me playing at eight beats per second. You know, it's fast drumming, but it's all in the bass tones, the slap tones, and, the, and just the way that different orchestration of the, the rhythms uh, come about. So, Now, I also read that you arranged these 600 different rhythms into 10 symptom categories. And I wonder if you can share at least some of those symptom categories to give us a sense of how you arranged all of these different rhythms. Yeah, um, there's, um, there's calm, so anxiety reduction. There's um, attention, impulsivity. Um, there's a language and communication. There's socialization. There's sleep. 
um, there's energy, there's mood. Uh, and I, I don't remember the rest of them, but we were just kind of looking at the broad categories of what that meant. So if we saw, uh, you know, if we're looking at mood, we're, we're, you know, looking at the different aspects of mood and trying to then connect them to what might be an observation that one would make when they were looking at um, trying to determine whether or not somebody has a mood issue, for instance. So we, at, at, as we were looking at these symptom categories, I was also referencing the uh, DSM-4, which is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the American Psychiatric Association, which is what's used to diagnose these different conditions that I was working with. And so those these symptom categories related to diagnostic criteria that you'll find in the DSM-4. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeff, for people who have maybe heard of binaural beat music and how working with binaural beats can shift brain states. Can you talk about how the work you're doing with rhythmic entrainment is either similar or different from binaural beat recordings? Sure. Uh, It's similar and different. Um, Binaural beats come out of the idea that you can uh, have a pulsation that the brain's getting entrained to, and it comes out of the age-old shamanic technique. I mean, if you trace all this stuff back, it goes back tens of thousands of years to the traditional shaman beating a drum in a repetitive four-beat pulsation. Now, binaural beats come from a phenomenon in the brain where, um, and this is, this is related to our ability to locate sound in space. So if we hear someone speaking or we hear a bird or a dog barking, we're able to tell what direction that's coming from. And we're able to do that because of the time differential between uh, when that sound hits the left ear and the right ear. And so that differential, we're able to, to, to pick up these milliseconds of difference. And we're able to use that as, a, as ability to locate where something is in space sound-wise. That ability to differentiate to that degree, uh, timing, allows us then to differentiate slightly different tones because they are frequency is timing uh, uh, each different tone that you hear like on a k- keyboard for instance uh, the the note a has a different wavelength than the note b and so the b being slightly higher will be a slightly shorter wavelength your brains if if, if you were to give one frequency in one ear and the other frequency in the other ear the brain is actually able to perceive the difference in those wavelengths, the same way it can perceive that the difference in time that that sound comes from one ear to the other. And um, if you play with those frequencies, you can actually create a pulsation in the brain, which the brain will entrain to. And that's what a binaural beat is all about. So um, it's the same idea then as a pulsation of a drumming pattern. So think of it this way. If you've got um, a binaural beat, for instance, of and I don't want to confuse people with the math, but it, it's fairly simple. Uh, say uh, what happens with with binaural beats is the difference between two frequencies is what turns into a pulsation. So if you have a frequency in one ear of 400 hertz and you have a frequency in another ear of 404 hertz, the brain will actually perceive that four-beat difference as a as a pulse. It'll sound like a drumming pulse. And it has the same effect as the drum. Um, however, where, where binaural beats and where drumming, and not just REI drumming, but drumming in general can differ, is that with the binaural beat, you have a very steady pulse because you're playing a frequency in one ear and another frequency in another ear, and that pulsation is not going to change. It's, gonna, it's, it's, it's simply a difference in wave, wavelength of frequency that is perceived as a pulsation. It's not actually a sound. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be this, this beat that you hear. Drumming rhythm is going to have the drum beat, but also the frequencies of the, the the drum skin itself, you know, the tone and the pitch of the drum and the overtones of the drum. And then you add into that the variability in the drummer, which is, I think, the key component in, in why drumming can be different. Um, once you create that variability, you've just opened the door to a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, I talk about this in, in um, a, a course I offer, which is uh, on drum healing, where I show people what happens when you go through the different 
speeds of drumming and same thing for speeds of binaural beats. If you're going to entrain someone to a low theta frequency, that four beat per second pulsation that the shamans use, you can play a very repetitive rhythm. And because it's an inwardly directed state, in other words, you're less aware of your outer world and you're more aware of your inner world, your, your, your brain is going to perceive that pulsation and it's going to feel the beat and it's going to entrain to it just fine. As you speed up and you come out of this deeper level of awareness, you, you get to the upper levels of theta state of consciousness and into alpha, like, which is, like I said, an outwardly directed but neurologically calm state, you're now um, in a place where your, your intellectual brain starts to get involved. And if you play a repetitive pulsation, the brain will actually shut down because it has figured it out, because our brains are deciphering mechanisms, and they want to, and always do, categorize stimulus that comes in, be able to relate it to something in the past, and be able to make sense of it. And once we make sense of it, we decide what we want to do with it. And if it um, is not important to us, it just fades into the background. So as we speed up the pulsation, whether it's a binaural beat or a drumming rhythm, the brain needs something more complex to deal with the faster we go. Because if it becomes too repetitive, the brain will shut it out. And this is one of the issues that the binaural beats have had over the years, is that if you play a steady pulsation at eight beats per second, which is at the cusp of, of the theta state of consciousness and this outwardly directed alpha, the brain actually won't entrain to it for very long. You'll have what's become tolerant to habituation, and it may work the first couple of times you hear it, but then it'll stop because it's just not changing. And your brain is categorized it as something that's unimportant and then shuts it out. Drumming, if you vary the rhythms and you create a musicality to it, like any drummer who's playing well at that tempo, because they're not just going to play a steady beat. They're going to they're groove a bit. And once you start grooving, now the listener's brain is saying, what's coming next? And it stays engaged, and that's how it can entrain to these faster rhythms. Okay, I want our listeners to actually get their ears on what you're talking about. And so in just a moment, we're going to play an excerpt from a CD called NeuroCalm, and we'll play a bit of a track called Ganga Calm. But I just want to ask you a question. This may sound very elementary to you. I just don't think of drumming music as being calming. So I notice it seems kind of counterintuitive to me. I think of drumming music as, you know, let's bang the drum and we're going to have a military march or go play a football game or something. And here you're using the sound of the drum to help calm me. Help me understand that. Oh, and on top of that, I'm using a really fast, complex drumming to do that. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Years ago, um, I got a call from a, a publisher of music therapy books, and he heard about my work, and he, he said, you know, I'm, I'm curious of what tempo music you're using to calm people down. And I said, it's eight beats per second. He gasped. He said, you can't. <laughs> um, that's, that's not going to be calming. Um, it is, because what we're doing is we're bringing the brain through entrainment to a calm neurological state. So this isn't relaxation. This is neurological calm. And um, so in order to do that, the, the, the rhythm, like I said, has to be complex enough to keep the brain engaged so that it will actually entrain to it. But the brain will actually come into a state of an eight beat per second pulsation, which is a neurologically calm state. The trick with it is to make sure that you play the music in a way that it becomes background stimulus. You want to disengage the intellectual process of listening to the music. And um, that's where we ask people to play this background music that we want them to not be able to notice it after a few minutes. We also add another instrument to the drumming in some instances um, in order to moderate and modulate the drumming so that there's something else for the intellectual mind to chew on. And uh, we call that an ambient instrument because it's, it's harmonically complex, but melodically simple. And that, there's a reason for that. But the whole idea here is to, to, to make it so that you don't actually listen to the patterns that the drumming is playing, but you just let it be in the background enough that the brain will entrain to it without um, you 
deciphering and, and, and intellectualizing what it is. All right. Well, let's listen to an excerpt of Ganga Calm. And listeners, go about what you're doing. Just let it play in the background. And here we go. Let's listen.
Well, I think that gives people a taste of the kind of musical rhythmic compositions you create. How long do I need to listen to something like a piece of music like that to feel real calming effects? I mean, do I need to put it on in the background for hours and hours and then over months and months or right away? What have you found? Well, it really depends. Uh, Entrainment as a mechanism takes anywhere from 12 to 17 minutes the first time you encounter it. So if you've never encountered any any kind of entrainment music, so say you've never been to a drum circle or you've never listened to a binaural beat or um, listened to single drumming that lasts a long time, it could take 12 to 17 minutes the first time. But the cool thing about the brain is it becomes adept at doing it. And so the more you listen, the quicker it happens. So, you know, the first time, give it, give it a good 10, 15 minutes. The second time, it's going to probably take half that. Um, before you know it, it'll take just a couple seconds when the music comes on, your brain will, will know what to do. Basically, it learns how to do this. It wants to entrain. And uh, so the more you listen, the quicker it is. And we've had people actually tell us that I had a woman years ago who was part of a study. She had an anxiety disorder and, and she was um, she had listened to a recording every day uh, for for months. And she had a phobia about going on planes and uh, she just couldn't do it. And she, the, the big exciting part for her was a couple months into the into the study, she had to take a trip on a plane and she decided she could do this. Well, she ended up dropping her cassette tape, which was cassette tapes back then, it was the early 90s. Um, she dropped her cassette tape in the mud on, at the airport and couldn't play her recording on the plane. And she said she closed her eyes and just imagined the recording. And she said she'd heard it so many times that she could, she could get into the calm state just from imagining hearing it because her brain was so used to it. So um, it, the more you do, the quicker it becomes. So. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned in the course of this conversation that you used these healing rhythms with people with autism, and you've also mentioned now people who have challenges with anxiety. I'm curious what other applications there are and where this type of rhythmic entrainment intervention is most effective. You could say, here's how we, we know it works in these areas, but we're not so sure, let's say, in these areas. Well, there's, uh, the, the, there's four conditions that we work with most often, um, and they're developmental disabilities, anxiety disorders, sleep, sleep disorders, mood disorders, and then if you expand that out, sensory processing disorders. That's the five biggies we work with. Um, we like to, to really just look at things from the perspective of calm and focus as being the, the core components of what we do. Uh, getting the brain into a calm neurological state opens tremendous doors for all kinds of things. So uh, once you teach the brain how to get into this relaxed, low end of the alpha state of consciousness, um, Anxiety reduces, sleep improves, sensory processing improves. That's just pretty universal. And then the other aspect of focus, stimulation, uh, of being able to activate the brain through novelty, through the specificity of the rhythms. So um, any, anywhere we have a, a need to be more focused or to be more calm, that's what we look at. Now, we... Um, we see some ancillary things with, with some areas like uh, mood disorders. Uh, they're, they're kind of complicated. And then, and then you have um, some other conditions that we've worked with off and on over the years and, and um, uh, schizophrenia, um, uh, dissociative personality disorder. Um, these are areas that are more hit and miss for us. Seizure disorder is an area that we're not really we, we see, see what, what I'm calling at this point, even after 25 years, random effects in reducing seizures. Um, not really sure when it happens or not. Um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of broadening out. We're not looking at degenerative uh, neurological diseases. We're not looking at Parkinson's or Alzheimer's at this point. It's, it's been too complicated for us to look at. So that'd be another area that I wouldn't expect much from, even though we can improve cognition for the moment. We can improve memory. 
to a point, but I, I haven't looked enough to see anything if we can slow Alzheimer's or improve Parkinson's. I, I, the jury's way out on that. So Now, Jeff, tell me some about the research that supports what you're doing. Um, it started off behavioral. Um, and so we're always, we're looking at observationally. We're looking at uh, what's happening over a long term, a short term as well, but we're really more interested in the long term. Um, and so when we first started out, we chose conditions that you wouldn't expect someone to have a psychological response necessarily to, or let me, let me rephrase that. You wouldn't expect them to have a, a placebo response to. Um, when you're playing for somebody with autism who has no concept of what this music is supposed to do for them, you can pretty much be assured that they're not going to calm because you're expecting them to be calmed because they're expecting to be calmed from it. And so we started off behaviorally and, and our early research was really looking, like I said, at developmental disabilities, autism and ADHD, both in children and adults. And then we went into depression. Um, we went into chronic pain, which is another area that the jury's still out. But, um, and so we were looking at observations and then we, we, we shifted a little bit over the years. Um, I mean, that probably constituted about 15 years of our research. Um, and then the last 10 years or so, we've been, we've been playing with, um, with EEG as well. And now EEG is, is limited because we, you're really just capture, capturing surface activity. You're not looking super deep into the brain. And um, that's the next step someday. But um, first was observational. Oh, and then we also, at a period of time, we added in some um, quantitative testing through what, um, uh, what are con considered continuous performance tests, which are used for people with ADHD. Um, and these are really um, uh, normalized tests that you can pretty much gather pretty good data on. And so you could say, aha, their numbers are showing that we're seeing improved focus. But uh, really, for the most part, behavioral research is what created the foundation of what we've done. I think what I'm really driving at, Jeff, is from these research studies, how effective is rhythmic entrainment? Meaning 75% of the people who receive rhythmic entrainment over X period of time change in this way. Like, what does it actually show? Uh, it varies uh, depending on what we're looking at, obviously. Um, from the broadest perspective uh, of, of somebody who does one of our programs, um, it's exceedingly rare that we don't see changes. Ninety-some uh, percent of the time we see significant changes. And the caveat is there is anxiety is the number one thing. So I can calm somebody down almost universally. It's, it's really, really rare that we can't see calm. And we can't see calm within a couple minutes. It's, um, and it's really observable. And almost everybody will feel it as well for themselves. They'll feel it because it's a shift in their brain. Um, so when we've looked at it from, from just really drilling down to the data, uh, and we started a project, um, uh, probably, I think it's been four years now. No, it's actually been six years now. We started in 2001 uh, where we were, were using a, a continuous performance test, the types of tests that are used to, to evaluate uh, treatments for ADHD. Um, we started seeing some really looking at the data and um, what, we're, what we're seeing is an average of a 43% reduction in symptomology um, the number of people, the percentage of people who saw changes were about 93%. So this is along the focus end for ADHD. Um, so 7% of the people really didn't see much. The averages of 93% or 93% saw, you know, 43% reduction in their symptomology. So um, those are pretty good numbers. I, I don't know how they compared to say medication, but. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, given that, given those kinds of results, I wonder, do you feel frustrated that rhythmic entrainment is not more widely adopted? And why isn't it? Um, because it's drumming. 
uh, you know, this is this is the thing as we talk around a lot a lot here about. Um, is, is, am I bothered that it's not more about widely adopted? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I like more people to be doing it. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of it is because number one, we don't recognize. Um, sound therapies is really having much impact in the world. Um, it, it, it's not on the radar. You know, we're used to taking a pill or, or, or you know, doing something more invasive. You know, so so the music, for a lot of people, the idea of music or sound is so esoteric and it, 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 that they just kind of don't really consider it. I think that's part of it. One of our battles has always been um, just getting people to accept the idea that you can you can have calm or focus, for instance, from drumming. And drumming is another one. I mean, it's it's a tough one. You have a lot of psychological triggers out there from people who um, find it being very tribal and very primal, and they're they're not terribly comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, those are bits and pieces, and we've tried to get around that. You know, with with adding the ambient tracks, for instance, uh, we only started adding the ambient track when adults that were what we consider more neurotypical uh, were listening because they were wanting to intellectualize the, the listening. The people with autism don't care if there's an ambient instrument or not. They're fine with the drumming because their brain's just responding as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, the other challenge truly has been that um, coming from ground zero, um, with this research, with this idea of rhythmic entrainment intervention, we had to make a really difficult choice early on of were we going to do research that helps us understand and optimize an approach, or are we going to do research that simply tries to validate it in the outer research world? And, um, we, we, this was two, 1994, actually, that this came about. My first study came out as behavioral research. I was then really pressured to do uh, double-blind placebo-controlled research, where we were starting to now drill down into to saying, we're, we're going we're gonna to cover this space with our research to, to, to be able to, to, to get the you know, regular community to accept it. Or are we going to really look at making the best possible approach here? And we, we made the choice that looking at the double-blind placebo-controlled studies, um, we decided that we were going to focus on understanding what we were doing first. Because um, when you did the double-blind placebo-control, you had to have a, um, an active component that was consistent. So we had to come up with what we call a generalized recording. So I had to distill all the ideas I had um, into a tape for people with autism, Right. Um, or ADHD. And um, we found that the results of that weren't nearly as effective as when I went into somebody's living room and played for them. And we decided that, and there was a lot of factors that came into the decision, but we decided that I liked, I liked the personalized end of it, the custom-made end of it. And so we stayed on that tack, which meant developing these 600 rhythms that associate it with behaviors rather than just looking at the broader implication of calm. And um, that has unfortunately made it much more difficult for us to say, hey, look, here's proof. Because mm-hmm. now we're looking at all these variabilities because everybody's recording is unique. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that creates its own issues. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, one of the things I want to make sure we talk about, Jeff, is what you referred to as the traditional roots of the type of healing with drumming that you're using. And I know that back in the 1980s, you write about this in your book, Different Drummer, you met a gentleman named Lloyd, and that Lloyd was very instrumental, a street musician named Lloyd. Tell me a little bit about your friendship with him and how it impacted you. Um, well, yeah, a, a huge. Um, Lloyd was... Uh, um, he was from the island of Trinidad, and he was living in Los Angeles. I, I met him, actually... Um, at a park that was behind kind of around the corner from my apartment building in Hollywood. Uh, I would walk by this park going to school. I went to the musicians Institute where I was studying actually to be a percussionist. And I was studying with some of the uh, top people in the field and, and, and primarily, you know, studio world um, in LA at the time, this was the early eighties. 
And I ran across this guy just playing kungas, and I just was captivated captivated by what was he was doing. And it was interesting in that he was playing stuff not dissimilar to what I was learning at the Musicians Institute. Uh, the difference was that at the Musicians Institute, we translated everything to the drum set because that's what you do in popular music. And so you took these traditional hand drumming rhythms and you put them on the drum set and you were able to play a mambo or a samba or a merengue or whatever were traditional in, in um, Cuba or Africa or Brazil. And uh, you put it on the drum set rather than playing it on the four hand drums. And what he was doing on the hand drums was so captivating to me because there was variations he was doing that I, I wasn't learning in school. And so I bugged him to teach me. And, um, Part of his deal was he wasn't going to teach me how to play the drums unless I honored and understood where they came from. And so he schooled me on traditions and it blew my mind because I came from a very conservative Midwestern environment um, where um, a lot of discussion he had about ceremony and drumming in traditional tribal context, which is, you know, Ceremonial drumming is related to the spirituality, the religion of the people, and it was contrary to what I was brought up believing. And so there was a lot of this issues that I had with it, but um, he managed to work me through that. And, and what really got me, though, was when he took me to um, a family's house where he played with a child who ultimately, if I were to diagnose him today, I would say he had autism. Um, and he played one-on-one -on -one with that child, and I watched the dance between this child's behavior and his drumming. And um, he talked about what he was doing. Now he talked about it in the terms that, that were used in traditional tribal cultures about, you know, spirits and, and um, you know, behaviors and, and driving spirits out and, you know, spirit possession and, and these things that, that come up in that context. But um, it blew my mind in that he was using drumming in a very different way than popular music where you're just trying to get people to enjoy and dance. And um, so the, what got me more than that, though, is the fact that he was totally okay with me going into a regular music career, even though he was sharing this really deep spiritual stuff. Uh, I think he could tell that I wasn't ready. You know, he could tell that I was just, you know, just, I wanted to play in popular music and but he was planting these seeds that that took a, a decade to germinate for me and um that became the core of what i started doing with rei and and the reason that the drumming that i did became rhythmic entrainment intervention this esoteric mouthful of a technique because i wanted to take away the tribal parts of it because it scared me so much and i just wanted to look at it from a mechanical what's going on in the brain. And uh, so, yeah, he was, he was really important in kind of planting seeds for me. Do you think it might be fair to say that in a contemporary context, you're creating a continuation, if you will, of this deep tribal sense of how the drum can be a healing instrument, but that you're framing it in a Western context and using contemporary language of brain science, but you're really continuing a tribal ritual finding, if you will. Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I hesitate to say that in public. That's why I said it. Um, yeah, which you can, you can see the undertone of it in my book. Um, that book was uh, 20 years in the writing because I was so afraid to put it out there. Um, so, um, yeah, I do. And as a matter of fact, last year I started a course on drum healing where I'm kind of trying to wrap them, wrap these two together. I'm trying to bring in the, the brain science with the traditions and kind of bring them into a context that, that anybody in today's world can kind of learn the essence of how to do this, learn the rhythms and where they come from. I honor it the way my teacher Lloyd taught me how to honor it. Because if you can't look back and reference the past and, and, have respect for that, then you, you really don't have a foundation to be able to bring forward to do credible work in the future. So I've been really careful with that. I've been very private about it because I learned early on when I was presenting research that I had to tone down the talk. But I still, to this day, when I talk to, to professionals, when I'm doing professional conferences, and I still do quite a few, I still start 
by referencing traditions. I talk about the three traditions that create the foundation of what I do and, and, and probably talk more than I should about it because I want people to understand that there is a basis for this that goes back a really long time. And we're talking about tens of thousands of years of history and experience honing these techniques. We need to honor that. I want to end our conversation, Jeff, with giving our listeners one more taste of your music. This is also from the Brain Shift collection, and it's from a CD called Deep Meditative State. And I thought what we could do is actually, you ready for this? Play it for 12 minutes. Okay. Because, you know, Sounds True's function in the world for decades now has been to help introduce people to the best of our ability to meditative states. And so let's give them a full 12 minutes and uh, see what happens to our listeners. What do you think? Excellent. You know, and this, and this is a great place to end as well, because this is the, this is the beginnings, the origins of drumming to influence consciousness. This, this, this track is based upon traditional shamanic techniques. As a matter of fact, the, the core rhythm in here is a journey drum. And uh, for anybody who's studied core shamanism, you'll recognize it. I, I had a bunch of other stuff too, just for fun. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna take you to the same place that the shamans would have gone to tens of thousands of years ago. And just to say before we listen, I'm speaking with Jeff Strong with Sounds True. He's created the Brain Shift Collection, Ambient Rhythmic Entrainment. It's eight sessions of music as well as a program for better sleep and a focus and attention program. And now, Jeff, we're going to listen to a track called One Tribe, 12 minutes of a 30-minute track, and it's from the Brain Shift Collection, a CD called Deep Meditative State. And thank you so much for all of your good work and good heart. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tammy. <laughs> 